Hi everyone and welcome to the latest Beef and Lamb New Zealand Seen and Heard podcast. I'm Aaron Meikle, your host again today. And today we're going to be covering a range of topics around soil management and soil fertility. And we're covering them again. Um, I say that advisedly, we're nearly at 40,000 downloads of our podcast now. Which, um, thank you all listeners for doing that. It's certainly a lot better than we thought it would be when we first launched it a year or two back. But the interviews that deal with soil or soil-related topics are consistently the most popular ones. Um, 20 to 25% of your farm working expenses is going on fertiliser and lime and and products like that. So um, obviously there's a significant direct cost. But it seems to be, and particularly maybe at the moment, that issues of soil management are are really hot-button ones. Um, We've got other things as well as soil fertility like winter grazing, erosion, uh, nutrient loss that, that farmers are having to deal with it that often start with the soil. And I suspect part of the reason that discussion around fertilisers and soil management is is an evergreen, it's as long as I've been involved in agriculture, it's been a a significant topic, is that soil processes happen slowly, so cause and effect aren't always obvious, um, and it's happening beneath our feet, out of sight. So to shed some light, uh, metaphorically I guess, on what's happening under our feet, under our stock's hooves, I'm joined by someone we might need no introduction to most of you, but I've got 45 minutes to fill, so we're going to do one anyway. Welcome to Seen and Heard, Jeff Morton. So, Jeff, we're going to have a bit of a talk about your career and why you're the, the right person to talk about this sort of stuff. But um, what are you up to now? What's your role now? You've um, For a few years, you've been working independently or privately? Yes, I'm semi-retired in Napier now, Aaron, and I'm doing a little bit of consultancy. Um, mainly in the environmental soil area, so I'm, I'm really enjoying that. It um, gives me something to do and stops me from becoming divorced or hanging around home too, too much. And no shortage of work in that space at the moment. But um, So why are you the right person to do that sort of thing? Tell us about your career, Jeff, and what you, how you sort of came to be where you are now. Well, my career started in Greymouth over 40 years ago as a district scientist on the West Coast. It was a great place to start a career. A lot of problems. Farmers were really interested in what research you did and what it meant for them. I then moved over to Christchurch, um, worked mainly on the DDT residue issue in Mid Canterbury, and then for the next 12, 13 years moved down to Invermay where I um, managed the soil fertility team down there and kept doing active soil fertility research myself. So then in 2005 I made a major shift. I left Ag Research and went and worked for Balanced Agri-Nutrients, training um, there the fertiliser reps and that was a real good learning experience. So I think I've, you know, I've got a pretty wide broad range of experience both in science and extension and you know, over the years I've worked in a lot, of, a lot of different farming areas. And so I'm going to refer a wee bit later on to the fertiliser use on New Zealand sheep and beef farms, that was, you've been involved in yes. writing that, that was one yep. of your babies once yes. upon a time? Yeah. Alright, All right, look We've got a lot of stuff to cover. You and I were just having a chat and I picked you up at the airport, we drove over here and we were having a bit of a chat before we started about all the things we want to cover. So hopefully we've got enough time. But um, usual story and because somebody may have a short attention span or they've only got time to listen to the start of the podcast, if you were sitting down talking with a farmer or the old the elevator pitch, I guess, what's the the key things, the most important things, the top tips you've got for farmers that, when they're managing their soil, soil fertility to, to keep an eye on or what they should be doing, what they should be measuring? Well, you've got to look after your soil because it's the basis of the whole farming system. But just narrowing it a bit down to, to nutrients, and I've harped on about this for a long time, but it's essential that you replace the nutrients that, that are lost in your farming system. If you don't do that, well, um, inevitably, inevitably things start to go awry. The, the, the part, 
pasture production drops, stock production drops, etc. And I think those of us that are a bit older remember back to the to the eighties when, unfortunately, a lot less fertilizer went on than than was meant to go on, and and we can remember the consequences of that. So it's boring, but you know, as I've said many times before, also. Nearly all successful farmers I've found in, in New Zealand use conventional fertilisers, mm-hmm. and there's good reasons for that. So that's that, that's basically my short message. Cool. And we are going to drill into that, particularly around, um, as well as talking about nutrients, some of the types of products and things that are there. Um, but it all starts with, uh, you said, you know, know what's leaving your farm and, and know what you're, you're putting back on and, keep, and balancing that. So... What's your advice? What are your recommendations around how farmers get that information? How they know what's going on in terms of what testing should they do? When? Why? How? Um, well, soil testing is the basic um, thing you should be carrying out, and what works best is that you regularly sample at roughly the same time of the year from the same paddocks and build up trends over time. Because if you go into a paddock. You know the absolute soil levels could vary depending on where you walk, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what's really important is the trends over time, and that that gives you so much information. So that's that's number one. The other thing that's real useful to do, especially probably on better farming country, is to consider all paddock testing so that you can pick out which paddocks have got your low Olsen P levels, low pHs. And, and there's technology around now both by ground and from air to actually differentially apply those nutrients or lime to those areas. So that, 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 that's the second important thing. Um, pasture testing's pretty important, especially when you're trying to identify what might be lacking for animals. But if you're doing pasture testing, it's essential to do it when, in, at a time of the year when the pastures are really growing well. So things like soil moisture temperature are not limited so any lack of nutrient in the plant you can put down to to nutrition and not some other thing that's limiting plant growth so just we'll come back to some of the soil testing paddock testing stuff are that just while you're on pasture testing is that important as well it's done at the same time of year or just when it's growing or should you try and always do it in spring for example or Spring's dry one year, you do it in autumn, is it going to make much of a difference? Spring's a really good time to do it, um, from kind of mid-spring onwards, when hopefully you're getting quite good legume growth, because clover's the key, the key species to sample, mm-hmm. um, because from clover, clover's so essential, as you know, to nitrogen supply for the pasture, and, and obviously if you sample clover every time, it takes out some of the variability between um, species. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing pasture samples, you're you're separating by species. You'd have your grass and your legume separate, or do they do that in the lab? What's the? They can do that in the lab, Aaron. But if you're smart, you can probably um, sample legume dominant areas, mm-hmm. avoiding dung and urine patches. Obviously, with a, and with if you've got a ninety percent legume, ten percent grass sample, mm-hmm. that's close enough to, okay. to 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 a pure legume sample for for what we want to do. Okay, and you mentioned all paddock testing. And I know this is something actually some of the RMPP work in the early stage of the, when they were trialling different ways of um, working with farmers and it was actually one thing that came popped up for a number of them. They got a number of farmers to all paddock test mm. and it made some, there were some um, significant lessons they learned about yep. the farm that they'd been missing. With mm. Can you just explain what all paddock testing is and how often they should be doing? I mean, is it just basically standard soil testing but you do every paddock every year or what are we... What are we talking about? Uh, no, you do every paddock, but you don't have to do it every year. Um, what I would recommend is an initial sampling, 
and then you differentially fertilise or mm-hmm. lime those paddocks depending on the results and then maybe three or four or five years later you come back and just check that we have put the differential rates on mm-hmm. the, the levels have come up to where yep. you hope them to come up to it's um, basically I think you only really need Olsen P's a, a major one that's a must pH is quite important but if you just do those two which reduces the cost a little bit then um, that, that, that gives you a pretty good story and what's the the objective? I mean, okay, so you work for Balance, so the objective is test every paddock and therefore you get people putting on more fertiliser, or what's the outcome when, when people do do all paddock testing? Well, basically, the ideal situation on any farm is for any class of land, production-wise, to have the soil nutrient levels as uniform as possible. Mm-hmm. So that's what the differential application does. But what it also does for P especially is... Is reduces the impact of of Olsen P or soil P levels on on mm-hmm. phosphorus loss to waterways. So if you've got some very high paddocks Olsen P, higher than they need to be, we well can stop putting P on those for mm-hmm. a year or two, get the levels down to where they should be, an economic optimum. You can also bring the the low ones up, so you, you know you've got a sustainable farming mm-hmm. system. Yeah, I mean there was a, one of the classic cases again in the RMPP work was their fertilizer bill reduced dramatically like tens yep. of thousands of dollars because as you said some paddocks were perfectly fine they've been applying blanket fertiliser and they actually targeted the ones that they needed um, in your experience when farmers do do an all paddock testing of their farm do they what tends to happen they spend more on fertiliser the same amount or they find they can reduce it or they just the same amount and use it more appropriately what's I think they spend about the same to, to, to a mm. bit less um, in most cases in my experience mm. just better target yes yep. yeah um, speaking about the soil tests themselves, so you talked about the importance of same place, same time to get around that variability. Yep. I mean, what is the level of variability in soil tests? Because that's often sort of held up, no, well, they can vary from 20% from one year to the next. If you use the right soil sampling protocol and do the things that you just said, Aaron, you, on, on flatter land, you can get the variability between years down to down to around 10 to 15% mm-hmm. for Olsen P, which is the key one. can be a bit higher for things like potassium and sulphur. And hill country, hill country is a lot more variable. I used to get a bit carried away with, with sampling hill country, but if you do it, you've got to do it properly. You've got to use fixed transects, etc., etc., to to try and reduce the variability. Because normally, if you just do it randomly, the variability between years for Olsen P might be forty percent. Mm-hmm. You can get it down to around um, 20 percent, say, if you if you use a strict protocol. But on hill country, I've I've come to the conclusion the key thing is to, to try and get fertiliser P and S mainly on every year mm-hmm. and the other conclusion I've come to the earlier you can get that P and S on well the better for the for the growth for the growth during that season and even if you've got say on hill country Olsen peas are around 10 to 12 if you can get your phosphorus on and sulphur also in spring then there's enough nutrient from that fertiliser to grow your pasture for that mm-hmm. season. You don't have to necessarily... And, and it takes a little bit out of the equation, the fact that you, you haven't got the pea levels in the soil that, um, that, that, okay. that, that you might think you need to have. So I think that's very important. I think the fertiliser companies are slowly coming to incentivising application in the spring, and I think that's, a, that, that's one thing they could do a lot more of, spread, and it helped them, it would spread their... Um, it would spread their kind of the, the distribution and also help with the more uniform spreading yep. of fertiliser. 
Okay, so that's a clear message around smaller but more often applications rather than every two or three years a lot. You'd you'd really if farmers can you'd try and get annual amounts on. Yes, I think annual is very important and as early in the growth season as you possibly can. I know there are cash flow issues, but but um, but certainly if you can get around those, or there's someone prepared to subsidise your interest on Mm -hmm. the money that you have to spend earlier in the growth season, well, I think that's well worth it. Early in growth season, to be clear, you're talking spring. I'm talking spring, yeah. Yeah, basically. All right. So we're going to come back to some of that stuff, but just in terms around information gathering, we've talked about soil testing, what, when, how, and why, and and the value that can come from all paddock testing. That's for the nutrients and so on that that are in the soil. Um, One thing that tends to get overlooked is farmers knowing what their soils are. So what digging a hole, looking at them. I mean, how important is that for an individual farm manager to take a spade out, dig some holes, know what their soils are, where on their farm? It's essential. Yeah. It's really amazing, though, how many farmers have got good knowledge of, of where the soils are on their farm, which, you know, you'd hopefully expect because they're, they're on there all the time and, and they can see the, they can see the effects of soil properties on pugging, et cetera, et cetera, on, on growth, a lot of other things like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not, not, not only farmers, but certainly people that fertiliser reps, it's essential that they have a good knowledge of, of what, what the soils are and, 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 and how they might perform. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, the information is reasonably available now. You dig a hole, have a look anyway, but also soil maps and so on are to a reasonably high resolution. Pretty much every farm in the country should be able to get one for their farm? Yeah, there's a new um, mapping program out called S-Maps, which is really good. It doesn't cover the whole country yet. It probably covers about 70% of the country. Mm-hmm. But, you know, computer, computer literate farmers can certainly um, plug into that and use that as a reference and then use the digging the holes, looking at cuttings, etc., to calibrate mm-hmm. what's on the farm yep. actually against the, the mapping because the mapping's never going to be 100% accurate. Mm. So S-Maps, how do they get hold of that? Um, well, they can go to the Landcare Research website and you'll find a reference to S-Maps there and just zone in on your farm and it will it will give you the soil types. It will also give you some of the descriptions of the soils and some of the properties. So there's that information there also. All right. Now, we'll try and, um, if I remember, and I should do, I'll, try, I'll put the link to that in the description of the podcast when it's online so people should be able to go directly to the the website um, because it is something that consistently gets asked and it was just interesting we're, we're doing a bit of a sideways topic here we're doing a lot of work around winter grazing mm-hmm. at the moment obviously yep. and that's of key concern and we've got a winter grazing paddock Warren of Fitness saying look if you're going to put a paddock into your graze here's the things you need to be aware of some things if you can't fix them you probably shouldn't winter graze other things you need to address avoid remedy mitigate one of the first questions is is it light or heavy soils and nine times out of ten, I think if I was talking to a farmer in a field at a woolshed, they'd be able to say, oh, half my farm's light soils, half's heavy. But as soon as it became something more specific like that, which may have implications with the regional council, for example, mm-hmm. they go, well, what's the definition of a light soil? So I've got you here. What is the definition of a light soil versus a heavy soil? And what are the key characteristics? Well, it's basically texture. Um, light soils have, uh, have got more sand, more salt, and, and less clay, um, so so that contributes obviously to drainage because sandier soils mm-hmm. drain better. But the other thing that contributes to um, to drainage is structure, 
and and structures some um, uh, uh, by digging a hole and and kind of getting your topsoil and kind of dropping it on the ground and see how what kind of um, particles it breaks into can give you a good lead into into structure. If, for example, if if it, if it drops into if it breaks up into a whole lot of reasonably fine um, components, well then it's pretty good structure yep. and hence pretty good drainage, good organic matter, etc. But if it if it breaks into clumps, you know, bigger bigger um, soil particles, if you like, then that's a sign that you haven't got the same drainage through the soil, etc. Yep. You haven't got the you haven't got the same soil quality. Yep. So that's and, and, and that's that's pretty important. So I'm sure there's some videos demonstrating some of what you're talking about here online. If not, maybe they're ones we should have. Um, <clears throat> one of the we tests for soil light versus heavy amount of clay, and it is, I think, you sort of yes. roll the ball between yep. your fingers, and if it's closer to plasticine, the higher the level of the clay and crumbles you, and falls. Yeah, that's it. quite right, Aaron. If you if you can roll it into a ball that stays pretty stable, then you've probably got um, 25, 30% clay plus. If it... If if you can feel when you rub it between your fingers, you can feel it's gritty. Then it's got some sand in there, and if it's there's, there's no sand in there and it won't roll into a stable ball or etc., then obviously it's you know that's it's it's quite a bit of salt in there. So that can give you a bit of a guideline also. Right. And just a wee plug here, I think on the the Beef and Lamb New Zealand Knowledge Hub, there's at least one soils module i'm not sure if it's got videos of this sort of stuff but it certainly covers some of this information around um basically taking a spade digging some holes and getting to know what's what's there under your feet so all right let's um we're going to come back to the nutrients but one thing and where this this podcast actually got kicked off was you and i having a talk about um various issues and various uh uh, suggestions around farm management, I guess, that had, that had got into the media and um, talking about um, the, the the whys and wherefores of that. One of the key things that came up as part of that is um, soil as a carbon sink and that um, we've got things like the Billion Trees programs and ETS um, and some argue that farmers should be getting um, credit for the amount of carbon that they're sequestering all the time in their soils under under good management. Um, what do you make of that argument? Are they? Um, no, and in most cases um, the, they shouldn't because most New Zealand soils, and I'll talk about exceptions in a minute, are in a steady state. So if you like, a steady state means that the amount of carbon going into the soil and being built up through decay of plants, mm-hmm. breakdown of dung, etc., is similar to the amount of carbon leaving the soil mainly is carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. So the two are in equilibrium. So you're in a, a lot of, most New Zealand pastoral soils that have been developed for quite a while, especially on the better soils, have probably got, you know, have got about five, five to 8% organic matter, which mm-hmm. is high by, by, by global standards. The exceptions to that are maybe some areas that dryland soils that have got lower soil carbon, organic matter levels, mm-hmm. and then you, you put, a, you irrigate, and the organic matter levels will will increase, but they'll probably increase from say five percent to maybe seven percent. Mm-hmm. So there is some improvement there, but generally um, soils themselves and and there's you know much smarter people in carbon science have said the same thing than me. 
Um, they're, they're stable. There's not a lot of opportunity to actually accumulate more organic matter, um, more carbon into the soil. And I'm going to drill into that a wee bit more, no pun intended, but the flip side of that too is I understand from Australia when there's a decent drought, soils are actually losing carbon as well, or the organic matter can reduce. Would that happen in New Zealand in the conditions we get? Um, yes, but our droughts are a lot less frequent yeah. than theirs. Basically, organic matter is all about how much plant growth you have. So think of it this way, the more plant growth you have, the more decay you have to feed into the organic matter pool. The more plant growth you have, the more animals you run, the more dung to feed mm-hmm. into the organic matter pool. So, and the other thing that contributes to, um, to organic matter is root turnover. Mm-hmm. So basically under our temperate climate, with generally reliable rainfall, mm-hmm. um, you get, that, that's the reason why you get quite high levels of organic matter in the soil. Mm-hmm. So you did talk about the, the slight exceptions where a light soil maybe gets irrigated, it'll lift from, from five up to eight or something like that. Uh, that's, not a, that's not an endless process, it's a diminishing no. response curve. Uh, how long does it take? So oh, it takes, you're talking tens of years, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, 20, 20 30 years to, 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 to actually achieve that. And you're quite right, uh, as the organic matter levels increase, the, the rate of increase will, will tend yeah. to level off. So I'm thinking, you know, what I know well is the Waitaki Plains that um, my grandfather reckoned you could see a mouse running at 100 <laughs> yards in, them in the old days between yeah. the Scabweed and Matagari. And now they're, um, I understand, some of the most productive dairy country in New Zealand because of the, the sunshine hours, the amount of water and so on. But they've had decades of irrigation, yeah. fertiliser, man- you know, stock grazing, manure, root, root, all that sort of stuff. Um, they are at, without... Not going to put you too much on the spot here, but those sorts of soils probably now are at a steady state. They'll be if not at a steady, yeah, but they'll be at a steady state or very close yeah. to a steady state. Okay. Yeah. All right. <coughs> so that's um, the answer to the question of is whether soil, you know, farmers should be getting uh, carbon credits for their soils, um, and what can impact. But turn it round. I mean, there is some things we can do to soil that can actually lose that carbon out of it in terms of yes. Yep, and what are those? Well, continual cultivation is probably the mm-hmm. number one because as you cultivate, you expose the organic matter to more air, more oxygen. That encourages the bugs to actually break down the organic matter. Mm-hmm. So maybe on some of our... And, and that's maybe the other special case. Maybe on some of our cropping soils, especially vegetable cropping, mm-hmm. and they tend to, which is, I know is mm-hmm. not even beef farming, but they tend to um, continually crop, continually cultivate, and and maybe some of those soils have got their organic matter levels run down mm-hmm. and there's maybe poten- there's potential there to absorb more carbon and build those up. But you're not talking about a big area compared mm. with the area in permanent pasture. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. And in, uh, does the form, I mean, we're talking physical cultivation, so direct drilling, things like that, uh, do they have as big an impact or any impact on the carbon in the soil? They have less impact. Mm-hmm. They have some impact, but certainly less than less than cultivation. Yeah. So using direct drilling, you'll maintain your organic matter levels in soil much more than you would under, uh, under cultivation. Mm-hmm. But any time you spray that out, you're, you're going to lose some... Um, it's n- not so much the spraying out. Even, even with um, direct drilling, yep. you've still got some disturbance of soil. Yep. Yeah. So this, this mineralisation of nitrogen and organic matter still goes on, and also, there'd be some loss of organic matter, but not nearly as much. Okay. 
I want to move on, and again, um, I know we're talking about fertiliser, but I'm talking about some other soil management issues and things first. Um, and lime and the pH of soil is probably one that, um, to my eye, I think it's become, uh, there's been a bit of a renaissance in it, probably at least the last decade, maybe a wee bit longer. I'm not sure whether partly that's driven by farmers suddenly becoming more aware of the importance of legumes in their system and the pH is bit more sensitive or them being a bit more sensitive to pH but um, advice around uh, targets for pH on different soils, testing for pH, lime applications, it, again are you um, a little and often for fertiliser, what about for lime? What's your thoughts? Well if you're on flatter country where well, we can get a, a truck over well and as long as it's not too expensive to transport the lime, like areas like central Otago I know it's the cost can be quite prohibitive of transport. You should have your soil pHs at 5.8 to 6 and that tops 75 millimetres. Um, once you get into hill country, economics come to bear. You certainly should be looking at, sorry, where, where you're running your normal 10 stock units mm -hmm. per hectare, you should be looking probably at pH 5 ideally. And I think a good practice to get into on hill country farms where you've got to fly your lime on is to just do 10 to 20% of the farm each year to get into a, get into a programme. Mm -hmm. So that basically means that, you know, they might drop down to 5.3. You put on your tonne of lime per hectare um, every 10 years, say, mm -hmm. 5 to 10 years, depending on the productivity of the hill country, and that will lift it back again into, mm -hmm. uh, uh, into a reasonable range. And if you do that, you don't, you know, you don't get in the situation where you haven't put lime on for five years mm -hmm. and then suddenly you've got a big catch-up situation. Yep. So that's... That, that I, th I think that's a good a good strategy to budget it for some part of your farm every year mm -hmm. and do it in a ro rotational yep. manner. Because it's a, if I've got this right, I mean, it's a wee bit tricky. Um, nutrients we want to keep them at an optimum level, but particularly for lime or pH rather, there's a there's a minimum as well. We really need to try and stay above just for legume production in particular. Yeah, well, certainly on hill country. Once you get start to get the five two and it's dropping from that, then you you know your your, your whole production cycle can, mm. can tend to diminish. Um, aluminium toxicity is a, a big mm -hmm. one on a lot of soils and basically it, it affects um, other things. If you Certainly if you get to five and below it starts to affect zobia survival mm. etc. Yeah. Yeah. So 5.8 to 6 is the optimum on your more productive land. Yep. What are you suggesting as a minimum say on dry hill? Well say, say you're running you know, it's not so dry hill, and you're running kind of eight to ten stock units per hectare, around five point five. If you if you're only running, yeah, if you're only running four four or five stock units per hectare, then you can't probably justify having it that high. But basically, lime, as you said, kind of intimated before, it's it's you get the best result from it when you've got a lot of legume. Mm -hmm. So. Just as so, I think there's a big place to airily, airily apply lime differentially to kind mm -hmm. of your easier slopes and your shady aspects where you've got more legume. Put more lime on there and mm -hmm. less lime on the on the sunnier slopes or steeper slopes where you don't get a lot of legume. Yep. So again, you can differentially apply lime also. Cool. Um, and all right, here's a here's a we probably could do several podcasts on this one alone. <laughs> form of lime. Any um, strong thoughts, Jeff? Well. Ag lime is generally the most economic, uh, takes a year to break down, most cost effective option. Where I think fine lime has got a place is in cropping, where mm -hmm. you know your pH is, you decide to crop a paddock, you do a test and your pH is a, 
lower than they should be mm-hmm. and you haven't got a hell of a lot of time to apply egg lime for the lime to break down so that's where yep. fine lime's got a place you put it on it's it, it's reactive pretty much straight away and it increases the ph mm-hmm. so it's certainly certainly got a place there on dry hill country basically you know you you could, you could argue that because fine line breaks down quicker under lower rainfall, it has a place. But on that dry hill country, it struggles to grow legume. So mm. you probably don't need a lot of lime at all. So yep. that kind of counts against against the argument. So the fine lime, I mean, um, it's kilo for kilo, it's the same stuff. It just reacts faster because it's ground. Yes, yeah. A lot larger surface area, etc. Yeah. So um, we do see... Um, more and more farmers using sort of monocultures of legumes. Lucerne's the obvious one, but we're seeing things like red clover and so on um, used as specialist crops. So fine lime might have a place there if they're looking to put a paddock into yes. lucerne or red clover, um, it, and pH is pretty critical. It could have, uh, if your pH is really low. So so if you want to put a paddock into lucerne and the pH is 5.8, where it should be close to 6.2, well, I wouldn't panic too much. I'd just put on my egg lime. Mm-hmm. You can, yep. the, the establishment, yeah, it's not going to... It's not going to affect your growth too much in that first mm-hmm. year. So, it's, it's, so if it was, if the pH was down five point four, five point five for a lucerne paddock, then you could, you could consider, um, you would consider fine lime. But yeah. it's much, the thing is, it's much more expensive than than egg mm-hmm. lime. Yeah. So just on this, um, as I said, people get more interested in lime, partly driven by legumes. But one of the other questions that come up is, um, what's actually causing the acidification, the drop in the pH? Um, and the finger often gets pointed at acid-based fertilisers, so superphosphate, which has had the use of acid in it. Um, is that what's causing the acidification of soils, that application of fertiliser, or is there something else? No. Directly it doesn't. What causes acidification are things like nitrate leaching, photosynthesis, things that are normal processes in, of, of, in, in plant growth and, and in soil chemistry. So basically, and as you intensify, obviously, the, and you grow more pasture production, there's more photosynthesis, more nitrate leaks, so you get more acidification. So superphosphate's indirectly associated mm-hmm. there. Because but it stimulates growth. Because it stimulates mm-hmm. growth. But the, the trial work at Winchmore, which has been going for, what, 40, 50 years now, clearly shows that the, there is no direct effect of superphosphate application on soil acidification. Okay. And um, I'm aware of time, and I may be opening a can of worms here, but can you, in a pretty brief, explain how photosynthesis causes the acidification? Is that just through production of material and loss? Yeah, it's just, it's just yeah, it's, it's a chemical thing. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's probably a little bit difficult to, to, to right. explain simply, but it certainly is a fact, and you can't do anything about it's that. the production of it, not yeah. what you're putting on in yeah. terms of inputs yeah. is causing issue. All right, um, and just on that, so lime gets lumped in, it's not technically a fertiliser in itself, it's more, you know, it's changing the condition of the soil, the pH and so on, but are there any other products, um, and again, I don't know how long we've got or need, but um, that have similar impacts on the condition of soil that you'd recommend farmers consider or use? No, no, not really. Um, yeah, people answer there. So, yeah, we'll leave good. it at that. No, no, that's all right. I just, um, lime's held up, but... Um, what about uh, physical management of the condition of soil? So cultivation's a risk, obviously, but things like subsoiling, mould ploughing, drainage, I mean... Um, subsoiling, in my experience, and from the research that I've carried out, is only really effective where you've got natural vertical drainage, so you know, a lot of river, 
um, recent soils on river mm-hmm. plains, and and drainage is impeded by a um, by a pan, mm-hmm. uh, either a cultivation pan or a or a grazing pan. So if you've got a narrow pan, you break that up with your subsoil, mm-hmm. and, and the water can yep. can flow down vertically. Apart from that, I don't think that in a lot of cases the cost of subsoiling justifies the benefits. Mm-hmm. Mould draining's um, fine. You need at least probably thirty percent clay in your soil. You've got to do it properly. Um, if you and and, and moulds, if they're well maintained, can last for five or ten years. So, so mould drainage is still well well worth mm-hmm. considering. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, just moving on. So we've got. You know, you're talking earlier about if you had to, phosphorus and um, pH were the two key tests. Um, they're the, the most important ones. Um, there's been a reasonable amount of PR around potassium as a, uh, a nutrient, as an overlooked nutrient to a degree. Um, and numerous, you know, how significant is potassium as a nutrient for New Zealand sheep and beef farmers? Well, again, clovers mainly need potassium. Mm. So if, 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 if you have good clover contents in your pastures, are under higher rainfall and generally under mm-hmm. cattle grazing, yes, potassium uh, can, be, can, can be quite important. If we get onto hill country under, you know, a thousand mil rainfall where one year on four or five you get nice warm moist spring conditions, you get a good clover year, well, it, it, it's much more difficult to justify it um, econ- economically. And if you look at all the potassium tests that are done through the laboratory generally in 90 percent of cases on those hill country soils the quick test k levels are are fine you know mm-hmm. they're as long as they're four and above if they get to three then you've got to start looking at mm-hmm. it but basically to justify it you need you know you, you need a pretty good clover content so in that one year and four or five when you get your good clover growth season mm-hmm. then probably the clovers would would respond to that k yep. in that year but and I've thought all the time, can you predict that's going to happen? Yeah. If you could, you could put K on that. Point. Yeah, but it, there's so many variable, variables involved, it's probably not so much of an issue. Now, that's not to say that some farms, hill country farms, should have K when they're not getting it. Mm-hmm. But they, 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 from the data, are, are quite a low proportion. And it's wrong to, to kind of inflate those, mm-hmm. that small proportion to a, to a crisis mm-hmm. in hill country, which... In my opinion, and what the data says, doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Yep. So it's not a. It may. It's a case by case basis. It's a case by exactly case basis, Aaron. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, pH, P, phosphorus, potassium, sulphur—they're the, the big ones that are normally get tested for. What would be the other key ones that you think farmers should be keeping an eye on for their individual paddocks or individual farms? Um, that, that's basically it. Calcium is supplied both through lime and superphosphate, not an issue. Magnesium, maybe on some of the pumice soils, can get a bit low, but not 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 generally. So yeah, the, 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 those are the key ones. And don't don't neglect sulphur. It's mm-hmm. relatively cheap. Again, if you're putting on on a cheap beef farm, twenty to thirty kilograms of available sulphur per hectare per year, you're pretty mm-hmm. much taken care of that also. Yep. And that's the beauty of superphosphate. It's it's miraculously got about the right ratio of phosphorus mm-hmm. to sulphur for plant requirements. So, because um, we hear people talking a lot of you know, cobalt and B12 for stock and things like that, but are they one, I mean, they're not a soil test issue as much, though, where you're testing your animals and possibly Pasture, your plants? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, cobalt can be important. It's pretty, 
it's pretty erratic, but you know, on your pumicils, you can elevate your cobalt levels over time, but you've got to be dedicated to a mm. five to ten year program yeah. and then maintain them. So uh, it's very difficult for a lot of farmers to do that. So yeah, you test your animal, your pastures, and 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 basically, in in, in most cases, um, you know, animal treatment's probably the most the most cost effective. Yeah. No, it's just one that comes up as, you know, we're testing for those. What about all these other things that are important? But yep. message just trying to get back to farmers, the other ones where you need to test the, the end product, ultimately, the animal yeah. and, and what but it's eating. We've just got a couple of new booklets out. We've just put the, a lime booklet out there, uh-huh. which um, Fertiliser Association will have on their website. Okay. Um, yep. Yeah, similar to, the, to yep. the fertiliser use one. And we've also, I've just revised the trace element booklet also, oh, okay. which is 14 years old so that again will be on the Fertiliser Association New Zealand um, website alright and so I might just uh, well okay I'm going to jump ahead to one of my earlier questions around sources of information so the the, the trusty book that I've had and, and I don't even know if the current one I've got is the latest version no, is way out of date. Fertiliser <laughs> Use on New Zealand Sheep and Beef Farms which is from the uh, Fertiliser Association isn't it yeah yep um, and now there's one on Lyme there was a trace element book. Was that the one that previously was that Ag Research or Neville uh, Grace? Yeah, yeah Neville and myself and Mike yeah. kind of wrote it originally. Yeah. yeah. So they've been updated. Yeah. They're all available online on the. Yep. Yep. Are on they the... are they free? Yes. Yep. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, I'll make sure we'll put the links in um, those in the description as well. Yeah. I mean, for a sheep and beef farmer, those books, the, the fertilizer use in New Zealand sheep and beef farm. I mean, is that a good result? That's a Yes. You don't need much else than that. No, we've revised it four times, I think, Mm. Um, Ants and I. Yeah, and and just like to acknowledge that um, when it was first written back in the 90s, Doug Edmees played a big part in in the the original book, so I'd just like to acknowledge that. Um, The other booklet that we've got out there is one on forage cropping, nutrient Mm -hmm. use for forage cropping. That's been out a couple of years now, so that's another resource. And on the same site? Yeah, same site. All right, there you go. Everything they need to at one-stop shop. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, Look, we're going to get on to a few other wee bits and pieces. There's some questions that come up, and they sort of link in together. One of the first ones is around um, nitrogen, nitrate, so the last sort of uh, major nutrient I wanted to talk about is, firstly, why is there no... You don't do that in a soil test for it. Why not? Um, Oh, we'll start with that one. Why Why are we not testing for nitrogen as well when we do soil tests? Because nitrogen varies so much from hour to hour, day to day, that it's very difficult to interpret. So useful for cropping, mm-hmm. um, especially the available nitrogen test is essential for, for forage cropping. But for pasture, it, it's very hard to interpret the results. Why does it vary so much? You said even hour to hour. Well, because you've got organic matter mineralising to nit- uh, nitrate and ammonium all the time, that varies with temperature and moisture. You've got a whole lot of different processes going on there mm-hmm. that, 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 that mean that you get quite, quite a lot of fluctuation. Mm-hmm. Um, nitrogen, I think it could be used a lot more on, in hill country, targeted, early spring, sunny slopes, multiple mm-hmm. birth ewes, etc. So, you know, you, you've got um, utilisation going on. In some areas, like the Wairapid, is very well used, but there's, a, there's probably potential to use a bit more on sheep farms, but it has to be targeted. Mm. Well, that's, be- that's the issue. We're um, hearing about nitrate leaching and issues, so, and you're saying use more. How do we do that well, to avoid, um, remedy, mitigate the, the risks of it? Well, I'm saying just use 
you know, 30 to 50 kilograms yeah. per hectare per year over part of your mm-hmm. farm. So that's not going to contribute a lot to nitrate leaching mm-hmm. because you're, you're, not, you're not growing a lot more pasture total production-wise, mm-hmm. but you're growing more pasture at a critical time of the year when the animals need it and respond to it and you get a payback. And higher quality pasture? Uh, yeah, yes, although um, but it's quite interesting nitrogen because brown type, as long as it's in a green vegetative state, brown top mm. crested dog star will respond the same way as ryegrass will. And, and we know that most hill country pastures are brown top, mm. poorer species. It's very hard to, to maintain a lot of ryegrass in a hill country pasture because of, you know, poor nitrogen mm-hmm. cycling and lack of legume growth. So, so yeah. What about types of, like, a form of nitrogen you use? There's um, various products around, a slow release and, and, and these sorts of things. Any thoughts on those and whether they have a place or whether they actually do what they say? Slow release nitrogen hasn't been proven yet. It's generally too expensive for hill, mm-hmm. for sheep and beef farms. Um, urea is a staple one. The um, urease inhibitors, Sustain and Enprotect, have their place. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, when you apply urea, you need five to ten mil within the mm-hmm. um, following eight hours to to minimise loss of ammonia volatilisation, mm-hmm. and that's very difficult to achieve anywhere mm-hmm. um, to, to, to to time it with the, with the rainfall. So that's where the inhibitors come mm-hmm. in. They actually minimise that that ammonia loss. Mm-hmm. So yes. they certainly should always be considered. I mean, that gets talked about a lot, using urea and how much you'll lose through volatilisation. I mean, is that consistently a real loss, people? Well, it depends on conditions. Yeah. Um, you get the worst loss in hot, windy, dry mm. conditions. You can get up to 20% and, uh, loss then. Generally, the average loss is probably around around the 5% mark um, or maybe a little bit less than that. But it, it varies so much from situation to situation. All right, um... That's covered off most of the main technical topics I wanted to cover, but there were a couple of others we thought we'd have a, a bit of a, a yarn about seeing as we've got you here. And um, one of the things at the moment, there are a number of sources of advice or, or I don't think movement's the right word, but, you know, um, for farmers around how they should farm and, and changing their systems. And, um, you know, they, I don't want to name one particular one because there's several that are out there and floating around, but... Um, You've been around the space for a while and working with farmers, working in the research. What's your views on some of these things that farmers are getting advised about how they farm and how they could farm better? Well, the first thing is most farmers, in my experience, adapt their farming system to, to a whole lot of things, you know, the climate, the, the soil types they've got, their own personal goals, etc., etc. So uh, most of them do a... Uh, sheep and beef farmers do, do a really good job. Now, you're probably referring to regenerative agriculture is one thing that's had a fair bit of publicity recently. I've done a bit of reading on regenerative agriculture from a global point of view and you've got to understand it contains some really sound principles Uh as far as farming is concerned, you know, moisture conservation, minimum tillage, um, maintaining your soil organic matter levels. But and where it's really got a place overseas is in parts of the states, Australia, where it's semi they're arid conditions. You've got rainfall of two to three hundred millimetres on average, but the average doesn't mean a lot. Mm. So you get overstocked pastures, um, less growth, your organic matter levels run down. So it's totally unsustainable and degrades the soil. And there, a lot of the regenerative agriculture practices have got a real place and they showed mm-hmm. real benefits. But most of New Zealand's not like that. I mean, parts of central Otago maybe, mm-hmm. but most of New Zealand is, um, you know, 
generally 800 mil plus annual rainfall. Um, farmers do a pretty good job of drought management now. They unload their stock. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have to shoot them like the Australians do when it gets yeah. too dry, which I can never understand. But however, wh- yeah. why they haven't sent, sent them away before that. But yeah, so, so, so what I'm saying is most New Zealand sheep and beef farmers practice regenerative agriculture now. Mm. And I don't... And what a, what does annoy me is these so-called, um, what are they called, profits going around telling farmers they're not farming properly and they should mm. use their method, which, yep. you know, to me is um, a little bit arrogant. Yeah, look, it's interesting from a slightly different angle, it's the same thing, understanding the differences between New Zealand farming and overseas farming and what's a good idea for one isn't necessarily yes. a good idea for the other. And yeah. we see it um, at the moment in meat production. Yeah. And meat, where most of the studies and most of the recommendations around meat production systems are based on um, intensive feedlotting, mm-hmm. cut and carry, or you know, maize, um, corn, and those sorts of things, and very little relevance to what New Zealand farmers are doing in their free range grass pastoral systems. So, I guess the, the key message there is um, yeah, good ideas for one aren't necessarily good ideas for another it's um there may be something in it but it's got to apply to your own situation oh certainly and the other thing about it is no one's looked at from a holistic farm system point of view because most of these regenerative farmer advocates recommend very long pasture very Mm -hmm. relaxed pasture we know what happens with that Mm. your animal performance drops away Mm -hmm. therefore your profitability will drop away so so i think if you practice regenerative agriculture to the to the pure level that they do um, that they advocate, then you'd, ha- you'd, ha- you'd have issues in, in, in long-term mm-hmm. viability. It's fine. The soil's fine, but you've got to look at the soil in the context of the whole farm system. Mm-hmm. So yep. that's very important. Now, look, last question I want to ask, and I may regret this because we're coming <laughs> to the end, and I know you're... Um, but it underpins everything we've talked about to here. I know it underpins your approach to all the recommendations to farmers is around being science-based, and so it's, I wanted to ask you some of your thoughts, and this is slightly, it's broadly aligned, but not directly aligned to what we talk about, your thoughts around where we are with funding of science <laughs> and um, the application of science to on-farm productivity issues or, or environmental issues, those sorts of things, the, basically the setup we've got in New Zealand now with um, our different bodies, big and small. Well, don't get me started, really. <laughs> the science funding system's a total mess. There's very little real science being done in New Zealand. A lot of the money, if you can get hold of it, goes to, to overheads, marketing, spin doctors, etc., etc. Um, that's fine. I ha- it's difficult to see the system changing. It's up to farmers, and it's one thing that I've been a little bit disappointed with about farmers in general. They haven't made more noise about it. I know it's, it's a difficult thing to see mm-hmm. from, from where they farm, but it's so important for the future because a lot of things we're doing now, the science was done 20 years ago. So in 20 years' time, there's, there's going to be a real vacuum. But anyway, um, what can we do about it? I think what we should do in sheep and beef farming is centralise the different sources of funding a lot more so that the researchers can apply to one pool. And I said before uh, um, that I think beef and lamb could play a central role mm. in coordinating that, coordinating that funding. Because at the moment, the poor scientists, I feel sorry for them, they spend a lot of their time bidding for money. And in most cases, they've only got a 10 to 
chance of success. So you've got very clever people, keen to get out and do science and extend to farmers, but instead they've got to spend all their time all their time looking for monies. Uh, and a lot of that money they look for goes to pay the spin doctors and the marketers and the rest of them. Okay, I'm sorry to be so no, no, blunt, no. but I do feel very strongly about it. Well, I, I mean, I think it's important because everything we've talked up to about now is basically built on the science investing that's happened yes. in New Zealand over the yeah. last 50, 60, 100 years. Mm. And uh, if we're going to have a podcast or whatever they're doing, it it might be a hologram talking to you directly from your desk in another 50 years' time. Mm. What's the um, future going to be? Or what are the future Jeff Morton's going to be talking about on that hologram? With the, and, I, and I know I brought it up because I've heard you talk numerous times about it at Grasslands and so on about um, your concerns over where this is going. Yeah, the sad thing, though, I'm a solution person and I can't really find <laughs> see a solution to it. Yeah. So it's, it's frustrating as much as anything, which... You know, it's very when you, sad. When you just uh, just last question then, when you started out in this field, you obviously weren't doing writing a whole lot of bids and science for science. How was the science funding actually managed back then? Well, our salaries were paid through math, and we got a um, operating budget at the start of the year, and you had to stick to that. Once you spent that, there was no more money, mm-hmm. and all the rest of the time you just did, did research. And for example, in the Upper South Island, where which West Coast was a part of, we had a research director, we had one person in the office. Mm-hmm. And we had four team leaders who did half their time doing science. Everyone mm-hmm. else did science. Okay, there were a few people up in Wellington at the head office, but there weren't an excessive number. So it was a very efficient system. But unfortunately, Rogernomics treated science just like they treated the railways, the Ministry of Works, and everyone else. You know, it's 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 poor. Um, we need competition. So let's change it. And, and it was the worst thing they could have done because it wasn't all that all that bad. And well, it was pretty good in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Yep. All right, we have to get to another meeting, Jeff. So, um, and I know this discussion will continue on, but um, while I had you here, I wanted to get your th- thoughts on those last couple of topics. But leave that aside, the first uh, 40 or so minutes of what we've discussed there is gold if you're a New Zealand sheep and beef farmer and thinking about um, what you do with your fertiliser and lime budget on your farm. We'll put the links to those bits of information that Jeff recommended. Um, Sums it all up, available free online. As I said, I've got, I've just discovered an out-of-date copy, but it's been my go-to ever since I first came across them 25 or so years ago at, at university. So um, every farmer should have a copy on the shelf. But with having said that, Jeff Morton, thank you very much for your time coming um, on the podcast. Much thanks for the opportunity, Aaron. Thank you. We'll talk to you next time. Yep.